0: Well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing this morning? Great to see you. If you haven't got your Bible open yet, get it open to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, should be page 1 of your Bibles. We are continuing our series this morning through the book of Genesis, which I've entitled In the Beginning. Last week, I did a bit of an overview of the whole book, and if you missed last week, you can go on our YouTube channel or you can download our podcast so you can catch up. But today, we're going to dive into the text, Genesis 1, verse 1. But before we do, I just want to read you out a a paragraph, and I want you to see if you can get the meaning of what this paragraph is speaking about. So let me read it out for you. Here it is. It should appear on the screen. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than a street. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You have to try several times. It takes skill, but it is easy to learn. Once successful, complications are minimal. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in very fast. Too many people doing the same thing can cause problems. You need lots of room. If there is no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor, but if it breaks loose, you will not get a second chance. So how did you go? Did you know what that's all about? (laughs) Well, here's the thing. Unless you know what the subject of a paragraph is, it'll be hard to make sense of the details of the paragraph. So let me give you the subject. The subject of this paragraph is this. It's a kite. Now, with that firmly lodged in your mind, let me read you the paragraph again. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than a street. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You have to try several times. It takes skill, but it's easy to learn. Once successful, complications are minimal. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in very fast. Too many people doing the same thing can cause problems. You need lots of room. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor, but if it breaks loose, you will not get a second chance." Do you see it now? You see, unless you know the subject, you can't make sense of the details. And what is true of a paragraph is also true of the story of your life. Unless you have the right subject, the details of your life will not make sense. And what the Bible says is the subject of our lives was not supposed to be us, but it was supposed to be the God who created us. But who is God? I mean, people all around the world believe in God, but who is God? Well, this was a question that the Israelites faced as they left Egypt and headed towards the promised land, Canaan, because they were surrounded by nations who believed in gods. But who was their God? So Moses wrote Genesis 1 and the story of creation. And while it does speak about the details of creation, the main purpose of Genesis 1 is to tell the Israelites who God is and what he is like. And so that's what I want to look at this morning as we examine Genesis 1. Who is God and what is he like? And the very first thing that Genesis 1 tells us about God is that God is eternal. Look down in your Bibles in verse 1, we read this In the beginning, God. Before anything else existed, before anything else was made, there was God. God is eternal. Now, the eternality of God is expressed in two ways. Firstly, it's expressed by the fact that God is not bound by time. You know, you and I, we are bound by time. We have 60 seconds in a minute. We have 60 minutes in an hour. We have 24 hours in a day. We have seven days in a week. We have 52 weeks in a year. And we can't go forward in time or we can't go backward in time. But God is not like that. God is eternal. He is not bound by time which means he sees the past, the present, and the future all at once. As God says in Isaiah 46, verse 9, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. God is eternal. He is not bound by time. Uh, One of my favorite movies from the 80s is Back to the Future. Who loves Back to the Future? Yeah, fantastic movie. And in the movie Back to the Future, Doc, he's able to create a time machine out of a DeLorean. And, uh, you know, if you go 88 miles an hour, you are able to break the time barrier. And they're able to go into the distant past to 1965 and see Marty's parents when they were teenagers. And they were able to go into the distant future, 2015, which for 1985 was the distant future. You know, can some of you guys believe it's 2017? It's the future, people. And uh, but you know, I think the allure of the time machine is that I think we would all like to be able to see our past. And we would all like to be able to see our future. But we are all bound by time. But the reality is is that we do know one who is eternal who is not bound by time and this is great news because what this means is that he can silence our fears. You know, there might be some people here today and you've just finished year 12 and you don't know what the future is in store for you and you're filled with fear and anxiety as you look down the barrel of an uncertain future. But the great thing is that God is eternal. He is not bound by time, and He knows your future, and He's promised to protect you, and He's promised to guide you all the way. So God is eternal. He is not bound by time. But also, His eternality means that He is not bound by space. You know, you and I are bound by space. By virtue of the fact that I'm standing on this stage and in this building at this moment, it means I can't be walking the root burn track in New Zealand through the hills because I am bound by space and so are you. But God is not like that. God is omnipresent, which means that he is present everywhere in his creation. David puts it like this in Psalm 139 verse 8. He says, if I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the outermost parts of the sea, if I went to the middle of the Pacific Ocean, David is saying, even there your hand would lead me and your right hand would hold me. You see, God is eternal. He is not bound by time and he is not bound by space. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Um, in 1968, on Christmas Eve, Jim Lovell was in one of the Apollo crafts and he was circling around the earth. And as he looked back at our little blue planet, he became completely overwhelmed with the presence of God. And he read out the first 11 verses of the book of Genesis to the world. And so he should be, because God was present in space, because God is present Everywhere in his creation. He is not bound by time. He is not bound by space. And this is good news for you. Because you might have a loved one or a family member who is separated from you. And you can't put your arms around them and comfort them. But even though they're separated from you, they are not separated from God. God is present with them. You know, God is present with the Christians this morning in the Sudan who are seeking to stand for Christ and share Christ with their Muslim neighbors. God is present with the Christians in Iraq this morning who are giving their life for Christ. And God is present with you because God is eternal. He's not bound by time, He is not bound by space. So, who is God and what is He like? Well, the first thing we learn is that He is eternal. But the second thing we learn from Genesis chapter 1 is that God is sovereign. Look down in your Bibles again in verse 1. In the beginning, God. Do you know I love this about the Bible? Is the Bible never seeks to prove the existence of God. The Bible assumes that God's existence is self-evident. Because if there is something, something can't come from nothing. If there is an effect... There must be a cause. I have a little children's toy here for the kids. So you can look up here. I have a little children's toy. Now, even though you might not know what this children's toy is, or you might not know how this toy came into being, the very fact that this toy is here and it's not nothing means that it was created by someone. Now, Atheists know that this is a very powerful argument, the argument of first cause, that if you have an effect, there must be a cause, which is why atheists in the middle of last century, they started to put forward that therefore the universe must be eternal, matter must be eternal, it must have never had a beginning. For example, Carl Sagan in his book on the cosmos Carl Sagan was the premier atheist from last century. He opens his book on the cosmos this way. He says, the cosmos is all there is, or all has been, or all will be. In other words, the universe is eternal. However, the only problem for Carl Sagan is that as last century went on, and telescopes got better, and astronomers and physicists were able to look out into space, they observed something very significant. They observed that the universe was expanding, which means that it must have had a point of origin. It must have had a beginning. It's not eternal. Uh, Arnold Penzance, physicist and Nobel Prize winner, he writes this. He says, Astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing, one with a very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the conditions required to permit life, And so now most physicists and scientists believe that there must have been a point of origin when the world began. Um, Robert Jastrow, former NASA scientist, he writes this, For the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. You see, if there is an effect, there must be a cause. If there is something, something can't come from nothing. It must have come from someone. And the Bible says that someone is God. In the beginning, God. Now, God's sovereignty is expressed in this passage in two ways. Firstly, it's expressed by the fact that God is separate from creation, You see, surrounding the Israelites were people who were pantheists. Pantheism is the idea that God is in the rock, or God is in the sun, or God is in the tree, or God is in an alligator, or God is in you. But over and over again in Genesis chapter 1, it unequivocally affirms that the creator is not the creation. That God is not one with creation, he's separate from creation. So day one, God created the light and the darkness. God is not the light and the darkness. Day two, God created the sky and the sea. The sky and the sea is not God. Day three, God created the earth and the vegetation. God is not the earth and the vegetation. Day four, God created the sun and the moon and the stars. You know, in Egypt, they worshiped the sun. They worshiped Ra, the God of the sun. But Genesis one is saying, no, he's not God. God created the sun. Day five, God created all of the fish of the sea and all of the birds of the air. They are not God. And day six, God created all of the land creatures and he created human beings. They are not God. Creation is not the creator. God is separate from creation. Now, as I was studying that this a couple of weeks ago, it really, really hit me very powerfully. You know, even though people nowadays would never say that God is the rock or God is the sun, or God is the moon. Yet how many times do people in our day still attribute creation as the creator? How many times do people talk about mother nature? You heard that? Or they talk about the universe bringing things into existence. But Genesis 1 unequivocally affirms that God is separate from creation. The creator is not the creation. Um. My wife, Tegan, uh, a few years ago, she was able to go to the Louvre in Paris. Has anyone else been to the Louvre? i Been to the Louvre? And uh, oh, lots of people. Fantastic, you lucky people. Um, and she was able to go view the Mona Lisa, which is one of the world's most famous paintings. Here's a picture of the Mona Lisa. You might know the Mona Lisa. And uh, when she went and, and, and looked at the Mona Lisa, it's not like Leonardo da Vinci, who was the painter of the Mona Lisa, was in the Mona Lisa. Because Leonardo da Vinci is dead. He's in the grave. Yet as you view the Mona Lisa, what you do see is you see the creative ability and the creative beauty of the Mona Lisa's creator, which was Leonardo da Vinci. And you see, as you and I, as we go out into creation, we are not supposed to look at creation and worship it. But we are supposed to go out into creation and see the beauty and be filled with wonder at how great our creator God is. Have you ever had one of those moments where you've stood on a mountain and you look out over and you just see this enormous scene before you and you are humbled by the majesty of what you see? Recently, I went to New Zealand and I And you just see mountain after mountain, snow capped mountains, and it just fills you with this sense of wonder. You're not supposed to worship the creation, but that sense of wonder is supposed to point you to the creator who made all those things. So God is sovereign, He is separate from creation. But also, His sovereignty is expressed in Genesis 1 in that He is greater than creation. In Genesis 1, over and over again, we see God naming certain things. Look down in your Bibles. In verse 5, we see this. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. In the ancient world, the act of naming something demonstrated that you had authority over that. Now, this is still true today. I mean, as parents, we give names to our children, which demonstrates that we have authority over our children as parents. And here we see in Genesis 1, God giving names to things, demonstrating his authority, demonstrating that he is greater than creation. And this is good news for you as well, my friends, because you might be facing something this morning that you feel is greater than you. Maybe your marriage is breaking down and you're like, this is greater than me. I don't know how I'm going to cope with this. Well, it may be greater than you but it's not greater than the sovereign God. Or maybe you're facing an illness this morning and it's just filling your body with pain and you don't know how to deal with that and you've come to the end of yourself. Well, it may be greater than you, but it's not greater than the sovereign God. He is greater than creation and he can give you the strength to endure. Or you may have struggled with a temptation over and over again and you may feel defeated, like I can't deal with this. Well, maybe you can't, but it's not greater than God. He is sovereign. You see, what Genesis 1 teaches us is it teaches us that God is um, he's eternal. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by space. And it teaches us that he is sovereign. He's separate from creation, and he's greater than creation. But the third and important thing that Genesis 1 teaches us is that not only is God eternal and not only is God sovereign, but God is powerful. Look down in verse 1 again, the topic sentence of this whole chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens, everything large, and the earth, everything small. God is powerful. And what we see in Genesis 1 is we see the way that God exercises his power. He exercises his power through the preparation of his spirit and through the uh, proclamation of his word. Look down in verse 2 in your Bibles. We see this. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So here's the scene. We have this complete darkness, and in this complete darkness is planet Earth, covered with water, but hovering over the waters is the Spirit of God preparing the earth for the reception of God's Word. John Sailhammer, a Hebrew scholar, he says that the construction here is just like the construction used later in the Pentateuch where God anoints two artisans to build His earthly temple. Here, the Holy Spirit is preparing the world for the reception of God's Word. You know, And the same is still true today. There might be people you know whose lives are filled with darkness, whose lives are formless and and devoid of meaning. But God, the Holy Spirit, can still be at work within that life, preparing them for the reception of His Word. So I want to challenge you today who are you praying for this year? Who are you praying for that God, by his spirit, might be preparing them to receive his powerful word? Have you got a list of people, a list of family and friends and neighbors and people that you know who you're praying for, that God, the spirit, might be at work within them, preparing them to receive his powerful word? Well, then down in verse 3 to the end of the chapter, We see that God exercises his power through the proclamation of his word. And there is this formula that is repeated over and over again. We see an announcement, and God said. Then we see a command, let there be. And then we see a result, and it was done. Everything was created through the powerful proclamation of God's word. Now, I know the question that you're probably wondering this morning as we come to Genesis 1. The question you're probably wondering is, are we supposed to take Genesis 1 literally? Are we supposed to take this as actually recording for us the way that God actually made the world? Well, when it comes to Genesis 1, Christians have interpreted Genesis 1 in different ways. And I want to give you basically three ways that different Christians have interpreted Genesis chapter 1. The first way that Christians have, and by far the most popular way, is the literal view. People have believed that Genesis 1 is teaching us that God created the world literally in six days. In six days, God made this world by his word. Uh, Another view that has been very popular in the last hundred years is the view that the word day in the six days of creation refers to a long period of time, And it is true that as you look in the rest of the Hebrew Bible, you will see that the word day, yom, can refer to more than one single day. It can refer to a larger length of time. And so, uh, people, Christians over the last century, in wanting to harmonize the Bible with evolution, have said that the days of creation must have been long periods of time. And God used evolution in order to create the world. Well, a third group of Christians, they believe that uh, Genesis 1 is just poetic. And it's not necessarily describing how God created the world, but it's describing that God created the world. And, of course, there is some, there is some you know, justification for this because um, Genesis 1 is a beautifully crafted piece of literature. For example, we do see um, this beautiful chiastic structure in the days of creation. The first three days of creation, we see God forming the earth. And then in the next three days of creation, day four to six, we see God filling the earth. So on day one, God creates night and day. On day two, he creates the sea and the sky. On day three, he creates the earth and the vegetation. He forms the world. And then... On 4 to 6, he then fills it. So on day 4, he fills the day and the night with the sun, moon, and stars. He fills um, the sky and the sea with the birds and the sea creatures. And on day 6, he fills the land with the land creatures and humans. So there is this beautiful chiastic structure within the days of creation. Further, in the very first verse of the book of Genesis, the three main words, God, Elohim in Hebrew, and heavens, Shemayim, and earth, Eretz, these three words are repeated in multiples of seven throughout the text. And right at the end, on the seventh day, we have three sentences that describe the seventh day, and each one of those sentences in Hebrew have seven words. The, word, the, the number seven for Hebrew people was very significant. It was a word of completion, a word of perfection. So this is a beautifully crafted piece of literature. However, in spite of that, I do believe that Genesis 1 does describe the way that God created the world. I do believe in the literal view of creation. I do believe in what it says here, that this is the way that God made the world, even though it's a beautifully crafted piece of literature. And the reasons I believe this are fourfold. Firstly, the genre of Genesis 1 is historical narrative. Over and over again, we see clauses in Hebrew being used, which are the clauses that are employed to describe narrative. So this is a narrative. This is describing a historical event. Secondly, day in the context of Genesis 1 means a normal day. Over and over again, you see the refrain, there was evening and there was morning, the first day. So we have to get the word yom, day, from its context. And in its context, it's referring to one normal day. Uh, further, point three, God elsewhere says that he created the world in six days. When God speaks from the mountain to Israel, he says to them, in six days I made the world and in and the seventh day I rested. I'm going with what God said, right? And Jesus, Jesus also affirmed that the world was created in six days. And finally, I think that even though it doesn't rub with modern theories, that people have for how the world came into being. We must take it by faith that God created the world this way. Hebrews 11 verse 3 says this, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Now I understand what you might be thinking right now. You might be thinking, there you go, there you go. You Christians, what you always do is when you come to problems, you always play the faith card." You just have to believe it. That's what you Christians like to do. Well, I would like to suggest to you that it's not only Christians who take their view of the creation or, the, or, or how the world was made by faith. I would suggest to you that everyone does this because who was here when the world was created? Was anyone here when the world was created? Put up your hand. Okay, <laughs> and the creation of the world is actually a one-time event. It can't be repeated. We can't see it again. And even even the most hardened atheist who believes in evolution does not realize that they have certain presuppositions that they take by faith. Evolutionists, for example, have an anti supernaturalistic presupposition, which means they don't believe that there is a God and they don't believe that God can intervene in the universe. And that presupposition that they can't prove that they take by faith then colors the way that they see everything. So let's just be honest. Yes, I'm a Christian, which means I have a presupposition that what God's word says, I believe. And I'm honest about that. Now, recently, I've been reading a lot of um, this guy by the name of Thomas Boston. Really, really fascinating read. He's a 17th century Puritan, and um, he poses this question, which you may have wondered at some point, is that why did God take six days to create the world? I mean, God is that powerful, right, that he could just snap his fingers and he could create the world instantly. Why did he take that period of time to create the world? Well, what Thomas Boston, I think, puts forward is that what God was doing in the days of creation was he was giving a pattern for how his powerful word works. You see, every single one of us begin in Genesis 1 verse 2. We begin in darkness. Our lives are formless and void of meaning. And day one, day one, what God does is he says, let there be light. And illumination happens. And our hearts are filled with the light of the glory of Christ. Do you remember when that happened for you? I remember when that happened for me. I was 18. I grew up in the church. I had the the language of faith, but I didn't have the reality of faith until God shone his light into my heart and said, let there be light. Day two, God makes the dimensions of this world. He separates the sky and the sea You know, becoming a Christian when you receive God's word, it doesn't make you less of a person. It actually gives you new dimensions in your life. Day three, God separates the waters and he makes dry land appear. In other words, he makes a place for us to stand. You know, God's word gives you a firm foundation for living. Day four, God creates the sun and the moon and the stars. And He says He creates them to give direction to this earth, to give it seasons. You know, God's word gives you direction. If you want direction, you find it in God's word. As David said, Thy word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. Day five, God creates all of the animals in the sea and in the air and the world teems with life. God's word brings beautification into your life. And day six, God creates man to reflect his glory and to relate to him. God's word is the way that you can have a deep relationship with God. Where are you in the process? Maybe today you're here. Maybe today you're here and your life is filled with darkness You don't have any meaning in life. You need to receive the word this morning, and God will turn the lights on, and everything will change. He'll bring new dimensions, a foundation. He'll bring beautification. He'll give you direction. You know, I love what Thomas Boston says. He says, Christians should have a direct relationship with God's word. Every family should be reading the Bible every day. Every Christian should, be, should commit themselves to the personal reading of God's word. And every Christian should commit themselves to coming and gathering together to hear God's word. Because it's powerful. It's the way that God works. Who wants to see people come to know Christ? We need to be praying. We need to be praying for God the Holy Spirit to be preparing their hearts. And then, a really simple thing you can do is you can invite them along to church. You can invite them to hear the power of God's word proclaimed. Paul said, It is through the foolishness of preaching that people are saved. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing what? The word of God. And so who is God and what is he like? Well, Genesis 1 teaches us that God is eternal. He is not bound by time. He is not bound by space. God is sovereign. He is separate from creation and he's greater than creation. And God is powerful. He exercises his power by the preparation of his spirit and by the proclamation of his word. I started out today by saying, you know, unless you have God, as the subject of your life, the details in your life will not make sense. And do you know what, for every single, person of, every single person here, every single one of us has not given God that central place in our lives. Every single one of us has not lived with God being the subject of our lives. We've all rebelled against him and turned from him. But fortunately, the God of creation was not just a God of creation. He was also a God of redemption. Just listen to this. This God who is eternal, who is not bound by time, 2,000 years ago, he entered into time in in the Lord Jesus. This God who was not bound by space, he limited himself to the space of Mary's womb and was born a child in Israel. This God who is sovereign, who who is separate from creation, he submitted himself to creation. He hungered, he thirsted, he, he was tempted just like every single one of us. And this God who is sovereign, who is greater than creation, he allowed the ones whom he had created to falsely accuse him to put a crown of thorns on his head, to beat him with rods, to nail his hands to a cross and crucify him so that your sin and my sin could be paid for. But this God, (laughs) who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself and took the form of a servant, this God was powerful. And three days later, by the power of the Spirit and at the command of God, he was raised from the dead. And now he offers to anyone who will receive him, Jesus, the Word, the Word who was in the beginning with God, who was God, the Word who was made flesh and who dwelt among us. If anyone will receive the Word, the subject of their life now will change. He, the word, will become the subject of your life and your life will change. It will be filled with meaning. Everything will be different. The darkness will be made to light and God will form in you his new creation work. Let's stand and bask at the God of creation and the God of redemption as we read Genesis 1. I'm sorry for getting so excited. But this is exciting stuff. We should stand in awe of the God who's revealed to us in Genesis 1. How can you not? What an amazing God. He's eternal. He's sovereign. He's powerful. And he chooses in order to add to his deity humanity to limit himself in his incarnation in order to rescue us. What an amazing God.